You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 12, verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Let's bow before we begin. Our Father, we are very grateful to you for your word. We thank you that it is a clear revelation and that you have preserved it for us. We thank you that you give us the Spirit so that we might know and understand the truth. We pray that you would send your Spirit to be our teacher and our guide today, and that through the preaching of your word, your voice may be clearly heard and help us to understand the things in this text and to see in this text a revelation of Christ and his grace and goodness and kindness so that we might love Him. We pray that You would use Your Word to incline our hearts to the truth and to You. In Christ's name, Amen. Some of the most memorable and easily memorized and familiar verses to us are verses that mention the phrase, Son of Man, or use that title, Son of Man, to speak of Jesus. I'm going to give you a sampling of them, and some of these, probably all of these, will be familiar to you if you've been a Christian for any period of time. Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Matthew 12.8, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 26.64, Jesus said to him, you have, said it, see, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. Mark 10.45, This is a familiar one. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Mark 9.31, For He was teaching His disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, John 3, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then John 6, verse 53, For Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. Now, those are familiar verses. Some of them you have probably memorized. You probably heard them quoted. Certainly, if you've been here for the whole study in John, uh, you have, you're familiar with at least those references in the Gospel of John where Jesus refers to Him as the Son of Man. But the question is, what, what does that title mean? Why did Jesus use that title of Himself? Where did it come from? And those are the questions that we are going to answer today. And our text is going to be John chapter 12, verses 34, uh, verses 34 through 36. 
This is where you see the crowd in verse 34 ask the question. The crowd answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? This is not the last time in John's Gospel that that phrase is mentioned, by the way, that title, Son of Man. It also occurs in chapter 13, verse 31, where Jesus says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus, sorry, John, John writes, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And when Jesus made that statement in John 13, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, that is the last reference to Son of Man in John's Gospel. It's actually the last reference the Son of Man in out of all four of the Gospels, uh, chronologically speaking. So that phrase, Son of Man, and that title, Son of Man, what does it mean? Why did Jesus use it? Where did it come from? Uh, we see it mentioned here in John 12, and even though we read familiar verses that have the title in it, sometimes I wonder if all of us as Christians understand what that title means and where. why did Jesus use it. So today we're going to tackle that from this text. We're going to, Our outline really is a simple one. We're going to look at their question in verse 34 and then Jesus' answer in verses 35 and 36. So first, their question. Verse 34, they ask Him, We have heard that the Christ is to remain forever. How is it that you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Now, that question is prompted by the discussion. And I just want to remind you of what Jesus has been saying. He has been talking about His death. This is the final week of His life. Chapter 12 begins with Him being anointed for His burial. And now at the toward the end of chapter 12, He is discussing with the disciples and the crowds prompted by the Greeks who were seeking him, his death, the necessity of his death, the implications of his death, and who he was going to die for, why he was going to die. And as he is discussing that, talking about the hour and not being delivered from the hour, but that the Father would be glorified in this hour, as Jesus is discussing all of those things, he brings up this, this title, the Son of Man, and says, uh, sorry, the crowd brings up this title, the Son of Man, and says, how is it that you say that the Son of Man must die? So this is obviously contrary to their expectations. They had expected that the Son of Man, or the Messiah, when He arrived, would remain forever. And we can look at their question in verse 34, and there are some things that we can deduce that are rather obvious from their question. First of all, we can see that obviously they understood the meaning of His words. When John says in verse 33 that Jesus was speaking of the manner of His death, they didn't think He was talking about worship, like we talked about last week. Lifting up the Son of Man is not worshiping Him. Lifting up the Son of Man is not something that we do. Lifting up the Son of Man is something that they did to Him. Well, when the crowd heard Jesus say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, they understood, obviously, exactly what he was talking about, that he was talking about his death. Further, they obviously understood that he claimed to be the Messiah because that prompts their question. We have heard that the Messiah is to remain forever. So you're talking about your death. They understood that he had claimed to be the Messiah, that that was his claim, that was what he had taught them on more than one occasion. He had used messianic titles and imagery of himself and applied them to himself. And now they have a disconnect. We believe or have heard that the Messiah is going to remain forever. And now you're talking about the Messiah being lifted up. And the third obvious thing that we can deduce is that they equated Jesus as the Son of Man. They understood that this was something that Jesus claimed of Himself. It was a title that He had, had, had used of Himself on a number of occasions before the crowd and obviously before this crowd. So here is their problem. They understood from the law, they say, that the Messiah would remain forever, that He would live forever. Now here was a man that they had just days earlier welcomed as the Messiah, had sung messianic psalms of him, embraced that as it, as it were outwardly, I guess, only. And now, here we are a couple of days later, and we're still under Roman occupation, and you're talking about your death. So now the obvious question, if the Messiah is supposed to live forever, how can you, being the Messiah, claim that you are going to die? 
And there's something interesting going on here. Leon Morris notes in his commentary that the word we and the word you in their question are both emphatic. So it would sound like this. We have heard out of the law that the Messiah is to remain forever. How is it that you say, do you notice the difference, the contrast? The law says this. How is it that you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? That means that this is a snarky, mocking, uh, and it's not a genuine question. There is an element of sarcasm and mockery to this. They are, it is an expression of their unbelief, their disbelief. We have heard this out of the Scriptures, but you say something different. So how is it that you say this? And that prompts their question, who's this Son of Man? You speak of the Son of Man being lifted up. You speak of the Son of Man dying. You speak of the Son of Man suffering. But that's not what we get from the Scriptures when we read the Scriptures about the Son of Man. So who's this Son of Man that you are talking about? There is an element of mockery and sarcasm and and biting this to this as they begin to contrast who he says he is with what they understand from the law. And they are contrasting the two, saying we understand the law to say this, but obviously you are not measuring up to our understanding of what the law says. Now here's what's interesting. The word law, when they say we understand from the law that the Messiah is to remain forever, here's what's interesting about that. There is nowhere in the law that says anything about the Messiah remaining forever. Now, the law is the word that they would use to describe the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis through Deuteronomy. You can read Genesis through Deuteronomy in vain searching for a reference to the Messiah living forever. So what is going on here? How is it that they missed that? And there could be a couple of different things going on here with their use of the word law. It might be, and this would be an element of irony, it might be that the crowd simply had it wrong, that they were thinking of a passage and that they attribute it to the law, when in reality they are thinking of a passage that comes from the prophets. So it might be that it's just a miscitation of Scripture. Now, sometimes we do this. I've, I used to have a friend that would do this all the time. And when I say he miscited Scripture, I don't mean that he just got it wrong, as in he meant Matthew 9.21 and he said Matthew 21.9. Not like that. But I mean, when he miscited Scripture, he would get it wrong. And he would say something like this. He would say, Do you remember when Paul, after falling off of Noah's ark, was swallowed by the whale and spit up onto dry land, and he went to Nineveh and preached on Mars Hill? And he said in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm the light of the world, and a light hidden under a bushel can uh, lose its flavor and is fit to be considered as dung, and that I might gain Christ. And you you listen to him say something like that, and then you think, I I don't even, you want to clean something like that up, but it's like a train wreck. You just don't know where to start. So eventually you just say, yeah, sure. And he would do that all the time. And and I actually would play a game in my mind when he would start to quote a passage from the Bible, I would I would think, okay, is it going to be two authors or three authors that he kind of brings together? And it's he's either he's either a complete idiot or he's a genius. He's able to take all of his things and just sort of bring them all together in something that sounds somewhat intelligent. I don't think it was that he was a genius. So maybe that's just what the crowd is doing. They're thinking of a prophet, and they just say the law. Or it might be, and this is this is possible as well. Oh, before I go on. If that is what the crowd is doing, then there is a note of irony in there that we should not miss. Do you know what the crowd should have deduced about the Messiah from the law? What is contained in the law? Offerings, sacrifices, blood, more offerings, more blood, more sacrifices. If you could learn anything about the work of the Messiah from the law, it should have been that the Messiah would not remain forever but that the Messiah would have to die because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. If they had read Genesis to Deuteronomy, they should have concluded, if God is going to forgive our sins, somebody is going to have to die in our place. That's what they should have deduced from the law.
But instead, they come up with a teaching that is really not found in the law and attribute it to the law, when in the law, they should have seen that the Messiah would not remain forever, that He would be cut off, that He would die. And if that's what they're doing, if they're misapplying, misciting the text, then there is a note of irony there that they should have learned from the law that the Messiah would have to die. Now, the Messiah would, in fact, remain forever. But this would be at His second coming, not His first coming. The first coming was to die. The second coming would be to establish a kingdom in righteousness, and He would rule and reign, and He would, in fact, remain forever. So it might be that they're just simply misciting the Scripture. This is a second possibility, and it might be that by law, they are just using a general term to very loosely apply to the entire Old Testament. And if that is the case, then the Old Testament certainly did teach in a number of different places that the Messiah would remain forever. There are passages, sometimes in the same book, where the Messiah is spoken of as dying, and the Messiah is spoken of as living and reigning and ruling forever. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, and this would be one of those passages that teaches that the Messiah would remain forever. So maybe this is what they were thinking of. Isaiah 9, verse 7, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. And this is speaking about the baby that would be born. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's the passage. Verse 7 says, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Psalm 110, verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So there is one to whom the Lord has sworn and He will not relent. He will not change His mind that this person would be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That He would remain forever, not cut, not be cut off. Ezekiel 35, verse 25, 37, verse 25. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And by there, there Ezekiel's looking not just to David himself, but to a descendant of David, the son of David, who would be a prince forever in that land. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, which we read at the beginning of the service. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the priests and nations of men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Micah 4, verse 7, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Psalm, 30, Psalm 89, verse 36, His descendants shall endure forever, and His throne as the sun before me. Speaking of the promise that was made to David in the establishment of that throne, and that king would sit on that throne according to the, to the covenant given to David. So those are just a sprinkling of passages which speak of the Messiah remaining forever. So did the Jews have it right? Was the Messiah going to reign forever? He would. Would He remain forever? He would. You don't get that from the law, but you get it from the prophets. And so they did have that right. Ironically, some of the very prophets that they would quote to show that the Messiah would remain forever also taught that the Messiah would be cut off and die. In the book of Daniel, for instance, Daniel speaks of the time of the Messiah, the prince, that he would be cut off, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And Daniel is the passage that speaks of the Messiah remaining forever. Isaiah speaks of him ruling and reigning on the throne of his father David forever, and yet it's Isaiah 53 that says he, his, his death will be, he will pour out himself unto death, and he will die with the, his grave will be with the wicked, uh, or the, I should have written it down. Isaiah 53, you can read the entire passage. It speaks of the Messiah dying and all of the details of his death. So sometimes the same book, the same author would describe the death of the Messiah, him being cut off, and Him ruling and reigning forever. 
So they say, according to our understanding of the Messiah, He is to remain forever. And in their blindness, they completely overlooked or did not see the fact that the same passages, the same books taught that the Messiah would be cut off, that He would die, and that He would not die for His own sins, but for the sins of the people. And so this causes them to ask the question, then, if you say this, and the Scriptures say that, who's this Son of Man that you're talking about? Now catch the catch the snarkiness and the sarcasm and the mockery of that question. If in your mind you are picturing a bunch of teachable Jews sitting at the feet of Jesus and saying, teach us, dear Rabbi, who is this Son of Man of which you speak so highly? Please tell us. That's not the sense of it at all. They are finding that now, only a couple of days after they have welcomed Him into the city, the sentiment of the crowd is already beginning to change. Because rather than conquering Rome and putting down the kingdom of Rome and establishing a kingdom in Jerusalem, He has gone about teaching. He has cleansed the temple. He has threatened to overturn their religious system. And they are He is not matching their expectations at all. And so now, the sentiment is starting to change. Now they are saying, the law says this and you say this. Who is this Son of Man that you speak of? If they're already mocking Him. They're already jeering Him. The sentiment of the crowd is already beginning to shift. And before the week's up, they will call for His blood and they will ask for Him to be crucified. So let's take their question. Even though it's a mocking question, who is the Son of Man? Let's answer that. Where did that title come from? Why is it used? Why did Jesus use it of Himself? The term Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to Himself. It is used by Jesus of Himself over 80 times in the four Gospels. So those ones that I read it to you at the beginning, those are just a sampling of the different times that Jesus uses the term Son of Man to describe Himself. Over 80 times in the four Gospels. Interestingly, there are only two occasions in all of the New Testament where somebody other than Jesus refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. One of them is right here in John chapter 12 where the crowd asks this question, who then is the Son of Man? And the second time is when Stephen is being stoned in the book of Acts chapter 7, and it says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's the only other time in the New Testament where the term Son of Man is used of Jesus by somebody other than Jesus. It's also used in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, the phrase Son of Man occurs 108 times, 93 of them in one book. It's the book of Ezekiel, where God refers to Ezekiel as Son of Man, and Ezekiel refers to himself as Son of Man. In the Old Testament, that phrase, Son of Man, did not necessarily have messianic implications. In fact, it, it almost seems to suggest that it does not have messianic implications by its use in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when the phrase Son of Man was used, it was used to emphasize humanity in his frailty, his sin, his weakness, his lowliness. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. In Numbers 23.19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the Son of Man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And there, Son of Man is just speaking of humanity in general as opposed to God who is unlike man. God does not lie. God does not change his mind. God does not change his course. God does not alter. He's not whimsical. He's not emotional like we are. We are the sons of men. We are mere frail humanity. Job 25, verse 6, How much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Do the sense there? Like being called a maggot and a worm? That's what Job says we are. We're maggots and we're worms. And the idea there is that how much lower we are than God who is high and holy. And how impure we are. That's the sense of Job 25, verse 6. Because Job 25, verse 5 speaks of the stars not even being pure. How much less than men and the son of men. 
Psalm 8, verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 144, verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? So, as it's used in the Old Testament, it just has the idea of humanity. We are lowly, we are nothing, we are small, we are frail, we are weak, we are children of dust, we are feeble and frail, that's what we are. And it is in contrast to God, who is high and holy, which makes it sort of interesting that Ezekiel would use that term so much to speak of himself. And the idea of Ezekiel seems to be the same as the rest of the Old Testament. There is this contrast in Ezekiel between the glory of God, the vision that Ezekiel has of God with the throne and the fire and the lights and the brightness of that and the wheels and all the creatures. And you know that weird part in the first part of Ezekiel where you get this vision of God that is almost inexplicable, that words cannot contain. And then for the rest of the book of Ezekiel, we're reminded that we are like Ezekiel, just mere sons of men. We're weak, we're feeble, we're frail, we're nothing. We are sinners, we are wretches. There is one place in the Old Testament, and only one place in all the Old Testament, where the phrase, Son of Man, is used, and it is clearly used of the Messiah. And that is in Daniel chapter 7. So keep your finger or your pen or your bulletin or whatever it is in John 12, because we're going to be back there, and turn to Daniel chapter 7. I just want you to look at this phrase real quick. Daniel chapter 7. This is Daniel's vision of the giving of the kingdom to this one who... He says is like the Son of Man in verses 13 and 14. And I want you to glean a couple of things from the reference in Daniel because it seems as if Jesus is pulling the language out of Daniel when He uses the term Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man. Now, it's all caps in my translation. One like a Son of Man was coming, and He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, or the one who is like a Son of Man, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now here's what's interesting about Daniel's use of that phrase. Daniel, as he sees this vision, he he sees standing before the Ancient of Days, which is clearly God, in all of His glory, and I would say probably the Father, He sees standing before the Ancient of Days, one, like a Son of Man. Now, what would that mean to Daniel, being familiar with all the Old Testament usages of it? It would mean one who has the appearance of a man. He's in appearance as a man. He he looks like a man. He has all the qualities of a man. And yet, what Daniel describes here is something that cannot be true of a mere man, because to this Son of Man is given dominion, and a kingdom, and glory, and none of which will pass away. And then you read through the rest of the book of Daniel, and you see that theme repeated. That God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. God's rule and reign will never ever come to an end. So in the book of Daniel, whose dominion, rule, and reign is it that never comes to an end? It is God's. And that's the point of the book of Daniel. God's rule is everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting. He is king. But... One is presented before Him who is like a son of man, that is, like a a man, a human being, and to Him is given all of these divine attributes that the Son of Man possesses. So who would that Son of Man be? Who is both God and man? Who was God, became and was in appearance as a man? That is Jesus. This is the only place in all of the Old Testament where the term Son of Man is specifically and unarguably used of Jesus the Messiah. So now why would Jesus use this phrase, Son of Man? Let's answer that question. 
He used it in three ways. Jesus used the term Son of Man three ways. First, to describe what were His present conditions or circumstances surrounding His incarnation. Second, to describe His suffering on the cross. And third, to describe His return in glory. Let me quickly give you an example of all of those. Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. That was Him using that title to describe His present incarnation, the circumstances that He lived in. Second, He used it to describe His suffering on the cross. When He said, The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, and there He will be delivered into the hands of Gentiles, and they will kill Him, and on the third day He will rise again. He used the term Son of Man to describe His suffering. And then the term Son of Man is used to describe His future glory when He says you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great glory. So basically Jesus used the term Son of Man to describe everything that was true about Him from the beginning of His incarnation all the way through to the present and on into eternity when He comes into the clouds of heaven and He returns in glory. So that's how Jesus used that phrase. Now why would He use that title of Himself? Let me give you four very quick reasons. Number one, He would use that title to refer to Himself because I think he is, he is identifying himself with this person in Daniel chapter 7. It is true that he is the one who is here mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, who will be presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him will be given this dominion, this glory, and this kingdom. So he is the one in Daniel 7. Second, the imagery in Daniel 7 is that of deity. He is given this dominion, this everlasting kingdom. This is something that is true of God. And we read all the way through the Old Testament that it is God who will rule at Jerusalem and that it was the Messiah that will rule at Jerusalem. So by calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is using a title that has overtones of deity to it. It is his way of identifying himself as God, the divine one of Daniel chapter 7. Third, it is the title also has overtones, obviously, of humanity, because it describes someone who's like a son of man, and that's how the word was used in the Old Testament, to describe humanity. So he is using Daniel 7 to describe both his deity and his humanity with that title that is all wrapped together in that title, Son of Man. And a fourth reason is because the word and that, that title was really not in use in Jesus' day in a, on a widespread sense. There were Jews who would use that title referring to Daniel chapter 7 and referring to the Messiah. But it's not like that is a real common phrase in the Old Testament. And so since it was not a term that was in widespread use, it was a term that wasn't didn't have attached to it all of the baggage and associations that other terms had. Let me illustrate this. If Jesus had walked around referring to Himself as the Christ, as often as He did the Son of Man, what do you think the reaction of the Jews would have been? What did they think that Christ meant? They, the Jews of Jesus' day had an entirely different idea of what the Christ was than what Jesus actually believed and what He taught and what the Old Testament taught. So if He had caught, walked around referring to Himself as the Christ all the time, like He did Son of Man, he would have had to disabuse the Jews of all of their false nations of notions of what he meant when he was speaking of the Messiah. Because when I use a term, if you have a different idea of what that term means than I have, sometimes I have to correct what you might misunderstand, or I might have to correct what I misunderstand in order for us to communicate. Same thing with terms like Son of Man and Christ. If Jesus had walked around referring to himself as the Son of David, was he the Son of David? He was the Son of David. But if he had used that title, what would the Jews have thought? They would have thought kingdom and victory and military and all of those things. Jesus didn't use that title of himself because some of the titles that the Jews used and had had all kinds of baggage and associations with it. Jesus could use the term Son of Man and he could put in, pour into that term everything that he wanted that term to signify. And in so doing, he could teach about what the Son of Man was and that he was that Son of Man and he, and he didn't have to deal with all of the issues that might be attached in the minds of the Jews. So it is a veiled way of Jesus referring to His Messiahship, His deity, and His humanity, and to teach about those things 
to the Jews in a way that they could understand without having all of the, their false ideas sort of drug into the mix simply by the language that he used. So that gives us some idea of what the Son of Man was, where it comes from, why Jesus used it. Now let's look at, at Jesus' answer in verses 35 and 36. So we're back now in John chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. And we'll work our way quickly through these two verses because all of these themes are things that Jesus has already mentioned. We've already dealt with these in the Gospel of John, and there's not a lot that needs to be explained here, which is what preachers usually say before they ramble on for another 20 minutes. John chapter 12, verse 35, this is Jesus' answer. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Now, is that an answer to their question? Who is this Son of Man? For a little while you have the light, so walk in the light while you have the light, and believe in the light so you may become the sons of light. Did he answer their question? Yes or no? Now, I won't ask for a commitment. You might think no, right? He kind of answers their question, but he kind of doesn't answer their question. And I'm going to work our way through these two verses, and then I'll explain to you why I think he does answer the question, but not quite in the way that they were wanting or were expecting. I don't think he gave them an answer to the question because I believe that Jesus, I mean, a direct answer to the question, because I don't, I believe that Jesus knew exactly where their hearts were in asking that mocking question to begin with. So he gives them an answer, but it is a veiled answer, which really only results in them walking away more confused than when they came. So verse 35. For a little while longer the light is among you. Now Jesus spoke all the way, has spoken all the way through John's gospel about the time is coming when I will return and where I am going, you there you cannot come. Said that to the Pharisees. This is not the first time that Jesus has described either light or his leaving or the temporary nature of him being there. So he says to them that you have the light for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. Just as it is foolish and dangerous to physically walk in the dark and to plan a journey to journey in the dark, so it is foolish and dangerous to live your life isolated from the light, living in darkness. And so you have the light for a little while longer, and while you have the light, walk in the light. Embrace the light. Love the light. This is a gracious invitation. Jesus is saying you have the light with you now. Embrace it while you have it. Because the light is leaving you. And of course the light in this context is Him. It's Him not being there for them. He's only days away from His crucifixion at this point. And they only have the light for a little while longer. And so he's saying, believe it, love it, embrace it, walk in the light while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And then in verse 36, he repeats the same thing, but in a bit of different words. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Now the tense of that verse is significant. The believing there is a present tense speaking of an ongoing condition. The becoming sons of light, the becoming there, is an errorist tense speaking of something that happened once for all. So it would sound like this. The believing is an ongoing condition, not something you do in the past. I believed one time. I don't believe now. But I know I'm saved because I believed back then. No, believing is an ongoing condition. It's a present tense for everyone who is truly a son of light. But becoming a son of light is not an ongoing process. We become sons of light at a point in the past that still is present with us today. That's the errorist tense. So the believing is ongoing, but the becoming is not. We believe ongoingly, but we become at a point in time. So becoming a son of light is not something that you do over a process, over a period of time, something you do by degrees. You don't heap up enough belief so that over the course of time you sort of evolve from a son of darkness into a son of light. The becoming a son of light is something that happens when God delivers you from the kingdom of darkness, 
translates you to the kingdom of His dear Son, takes you out of your sin and puts you in righteousness, imputes your sins to Christ and your your your, your the righteousness of Christ imputed, imputed to you at the moment of my faith, at the instant of my belief. That is when I become once and for all a son of the light. Now the term son of light is a Semitic idiom, not idiot. Don't confuse those two. An idiom, a figure of speech. A Semitic idiom, a figure of speech, meaning one who is characterized by. So if I say that you are a child of darkness, it means that your behavior, your conduct, your life is characterized by darkness. If you are a son of wrath, it means that you are under and characterized by the wrath of God. So a son of the light is someone who is is in and characterized and lives their life as a child of light. So we demonstrate by our character and our behavior what we are sons of. The sons of light live like sons of light. The sons of darkness live in darkness and they love darkness. And so the sons of light who love darkness do not turn to the light because they hate the light and they don't want to come to the light. And the sons of light are characterized by light. So the light characterizes who we are and what we do and how we conduct ourselves and we display by our conduct, our nature, and our character. So if, I, if somebody walks in darkness and loves darkness and practices darkness and delights in the deeds of darkness, you can know one thing for sure, they are a child of darkness. But somebody who walks in the light and loves the light and responds to the light and embraces the light and delights in the deeds of the light is a child of the light. They are characterized by that. So Jesus said, you believe in the light, who is Him, so that you may become sons of light. And now look at the rest of verse 36. And this is chilling. These things Jesus spoke and He went away and hid Himself from them. Those are, those are haunting words. You realize that there is nothing more haunting, more chilling than for the light to hide himself from you. You know what this is? This is an act of judgment. Jesus walked away from these Jews who were in unbelief. And verse 37 says they remained in unbelief even in spite of all of the miracles that he did. They remained in unbelieving. And Jesus turned from those unbelieving Jews who had just given him a mocking question and he hid himself from them. Now in what way is this an answer, what we have just gone through? It is an answer in this sense. Who is the Son of Man? What is the answer to that? The answer to that is, the Son of Man is the light. And you have Him for a while longer. A little while longer. Our understanding is that the Son of Man remained forever. No, Jesus says, the light is with you for only a little while longer. That's the answer to their question. He answers not only their misunderstanding, but He does answer the question, who is the Son of Man? Who is it? It's the light. It's Him. Back in chapter 8, we see the same thing. The Son of Man and Light mentioned in the same chapter in that discourse of that argument with the Jews. In John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. And then later on, he said, when I am lifted up, uh, when you lift up the Son of Man, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am He. And he combines the term Son of Man and Light in that same chapter. He is telling them the same thing he told them back in chapter 8, that the Son of Man is the light of the world. But this is judgment for them. The Son of Man, the light of the world, hid Himself from them. That is, that is a reference to the judgment that He was bringing upon their nation for rejecting and not believing in Him. So who is the Son of Man? He's the light of the world. And the most chilling thing that can happen to you or to anybody who remains in unbelief is when the light of the world hides Himself from them or hides Himself from, from view so that they can't behold the light, they can't see the light and become children of light. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to You for the fact that You have opened our eyes to see the truth and You have brought us out of darkness into Your marvelous light. We love You and we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your goodness. And we thank You that Christ has uh, 
has saved us out of a life of darkness and brought us to himself. We love this Son of Man and give us a love for your Son that we may glorify him in our obedience to him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.